You're listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. Hello, I'm Juan Delara. I'm very happy that this is our eighth episode of Arts in Isolation, our cultural initiative with the Barca Trust. We contribute to the weekly culture fix by challenging misconceptions and fighting stereotypes related to the Islamic world. Today, our narrative follows the ones we have been building up in our last eight podcasts, which deals with the historical relationship in between the so-called division in between Christian and Muslim, Europe and Asia, East and West. And we're trying to dilute this border and to demonstrate that these were often very permeable. And today I feel incredibly privileged to have here with me Anna Contadini, who is professor of the history of Islamic art at SOAS University of London. She has recently finished her term as director of the School of Arts, which she established and continues to be director of the Treasures of SOAS project and of the Griffin and Lyon project. Professor Contadini was a curator of the VNA, where she focused on the Fatimid art collection, and she was also the lecturer in Islamic art at Trinity College, Dublin, and curator of the Middle Eastern collection at the Chester Betty Library. Her areas of interest are Arabic and Persian illustrated manuscript, material culture of the Islamic world, and the artistic and cultural connections between the Middle East and Europe, especially Italy. Given this amazing career, I wanted to discuss with her the fascination and awe that Islamic culture inspired in European thinkers, and also to assess the transferal of knowledge which was facilitated by the amazing centers of cultures that appeared in the Islamic capitals. Welcome, Anna. It's a huge privilege having you here, and I think it would be great to start by asking you to tell us a bit about the history and the intellectual engagement of Europe with Islamic culture and art in pre-modern times. Thank you very much, Juan, for inviting me to this wonderful initiative. To answer your question, yes, intellectual engagement with the Middle East in Europe starts very early, predominantly in Spain and Italy. In Spain, of course, there was an Arab conquest and a presence for several centuries, so that there is a long history of interaction. In Italy, there was an Arab presence in Sicily and southern Italy for 200 years, from the 9th to the 11th century. An engagement subsequently expanded in many other Italian centers, later involving also a network of scholars across Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries who were in contact with each other. And it was part of that major intellectual movement of the Renaissance called humanism, which sought to revive classical studies. So there is a long-standing tradition of intellectual inquiry. We must remember that the Middle East provided with a fervent cultural background to this European curiosity. From at least the ninth century, cities of the Islamic world, from Bukhara in Central Asia to Isfahan, Baghdad, Damascus, Cairo, and Cordoba in Spain, so we're talking about a very large geographical area, were all great intellectual centers with famous libraries patronized by bibliophile caliphs and princes, where thousands of books in many languages and on a variety of subjects, illustrated and not illustrated, were stored, as the sources tell us, and which attracted an international gathering of scholars of different confessions to discuss and write on religious matters, philosophy, medicine, and, and other sciences. 
So it's not surprising to find that major scientific medical texts by Greek and Arab or Persian authors were being studied and translated from Arabic into Latin as early as the 10th century and not up to at least the 13th. For example, at the Scola Medica Salernitana, uh, the medical school of Salerno, which is a city south of Naples, beautiful cities. This was the most important medical school in Europe at the time, where major works were studied and translated. For example, that by Ibn Butlan, who was an Arab Nestorian Christian physician. Um, he was active in Baghdad in the 11th century. His Taqwim al-Sihha, or Handbook of Health, deals with how to maintain physical and mental health. A very current concern nowadays. We Absolutely. Hear, yeah, we hear a lot about maintaining physical and mental balance with coronavirus. So copies of Ibn Butlan's texts were usually illustrated, and there are many manuscripts produced in Europe, not just in Italy, but also in Northern Europe, in Germany, for example, with paintings that go back to the Salernitan school of painting, which in its turn may have been based on Arab sources. Other influential texts include the Canon of Medicine by Ibn Sina or Avicenna, as he's known in the West. He's a famous Persian physician, astronomer, philosopher um, of the late 10th, early 11th century. And the Canon is an encyclopedic work on medicine that reflects contemporary medical knowledge of the Islamic world, but it's also based on earlier traditions, not just Greek, but also Indian and Chinese. Nothing like it existed in Europe. And the canon was enormously influential and was studied in European universities. It was part of university syllabus, at least as late as the 17th century. And there is another text which I would like to pause upon because it's of particular interest for our purposes today, which was studied at Salerno. This is a treatise on plants known as the Materia Medica of Dioscorides. He was a Greek physician and botanist who collected an amazing amount of information on plants. It's a work in five volumes. And it's essentially a text on plants and their curative properties. So how to use them to prepare medicines to cure human illnesses. What we would call nowadays natural remedies. This text provides an interesting example, not just of transmission of knowledge, but also of collaboration between scholars, which is something that really interests me. The Greek text was translated by the famous scholar Hunain ibn Isaac in the 9th century. Hunayn was a Christian physician working at the court of the Abbasid Caliphs, and the Abbasid being the dynasty that was ruling from Baghdad at that time, and was fluent in many languages. He translated the text first into Syriac and then into Arabic, but with the collaboration of a Greek scholar, Istifan ibn Basel, or Stephanos, as he's known in Greek. This was not an isolated instance, but, but was part of a big project, the so-called translation movement that took place in Baghdad, promoted by the Abbasid Caliphs from the 9th century, aimed at learning, preserving and augmenting Greek philosophical and scientific knowledge. So this is testimony to a great intellectual opening up 
And the collaboration between two scholars of different extractions is also, I think, very, very important and worth noticing. Stefanos and Hunain working together in order to make the translation of a text that included many technical terms as accurate as possible. But what is also interesting is that in many of the illustrated copies of this and other treatises, we also have artistic collaborations with more than one painter at work on the same manuscript. And their paintings not only illustrate the text in that they give a visual rendering of the plants with, with all their leaves, the flowers, the roots, but also interpret it in contrast to previous pre-Islamic examples. So we find paintings that aim at expanding what is found in the text by adding another aspect of the plant. For so, for example, if a nut tree is represented, another painter may come along and add an illustration of the coconut, which is obviously the Indian nut tree. At times, the paintings also provide a contextualization of the preparation of a medicine from the plant and of discussion by painting a pharmacy with physicians seen as discussing with each other as they are preparing the, the medicine, which will then be stored in jars, which are also represented in the, in the painting. So we have transmission of knowledge from Greek into Syriac, into Arabic, into Persian, but with additions of Arab and Persian knowledge, and then from Arabic into Latin. As well as Salerno, translations also took place later, and of course, another major translation project from the 12th century took place in Toledo, in Spain, involving Jewish as well as Christian scholars. And it provided Latin versions of the important philosophical and scientific heritage that had been transmitted and augmented through Arabic, and in this way preserving both Greek and Arab knowledge and making it available to the Western world. So I see this as a completely different history than the one shared mainstream. And I wonder, can you tell us a little bit more about the impact of such texts in European scholarship, and did this text continue to be copied and illustrated? Yes, because the story doesn't end with the medieval period, mm -hmm. because this text in their Latin versions, done from Arabic, were to remain standard sources for, for many centuries after, accompanied sometimes by commentaries, in fact, by voluminous commentaries. For example, the treatise on plants I just mentioned was extensively commented on by uh, such eminent figures as Andrea Mattioli of the 16th century, a physician and botanist from Siena, who was in contact with other European humanists through frequent discussions and correspondence. So there is a you know, great international contact and discussion here. And, and that is not all. I have recently studied an impressive Latin translation of Dioscorides of this herbal with Mattioli's commentary, printed in Venice in 1565 and illustrated by another humanist, Giorgio Liberale. So there was, a, a, you know, a great collaborations between textual scholars and, uh, and artists as well. 
The book is in the Estense Library in Modena and was made for one of the powerful members of the Estense family, Alfonso II, who was also a bibliophile. Now, this book has a splendid red Morocco leather binding executed in the same year in Venice, but in Ottoman style, with decoration in gold and varnishes of various colors, medallions, floral decoration typical of Ottoman design. So on the one hand, we have a text representing the 15th and 16th century humanist efforts to expose, to explore, you know, the classical Greek philosophical and medical knowledge as mediated through Arabic. But on the other hand, we have a binding that is a splendid example of the phenomenon of the circulation and borrowing of, of decorative motifs and of the fascination with the Ottoman style, which struck artists as well as intellectuals for its beauty and novelty of composition when compared with, dare I say, the duller ones made in Europe at the time. Indeed, Ottoman design features would become part of the European vocabulary of ornament, not just applied to book bindings, but also to a whole range of artifacts, you know, textiles, metalwork, ceramics, etc. And I wonder, Anna, were religious texts also studied and copied? Yes, as we have seen during the Renaissance, there was a growing awareness of the importance of Arabic texts for the transmission of classical knowledge. And in the religious sphere, Arabic was placed alongside the biblical Semitic languages, so Hebrew, Aramaic and Syriac, and was obviously crucial for any serious engagement with the Quran. So we find already in the 13th century that Orientals, as they were called, so-called Oriental manuscripts, were being sought and acquired. And from the 14th, early 15th century, these books would become part of private collections of scholars to then be part of museums or libraries, and therefore available to a wider public and indeed to us today. So I have a wonderful example of the bibliophile Niccolò de Niccoli, who lived between the end of the 14th and the early 15th century, a Florentine humanist, collector and member of the intellectual circle of Cosimo de' Medici. Among the books of his collection is an Arabic-Latin dictionary produced in Spain, in Al-Andalus, at the end of the 13th century. So you have lines of Arabic in a rather distinct script in black and, in, and red ink with underneath a line of, of Latin, the translation in Latin. It's a precious document, not only as a witness to the Arabic spoken and written in Spain at the time, but also as an early example of a text commissioned by the religious authorities to teach Arabic in order to convert Muslims. Later, we even have a Quran printed in Venice in 1537, very important also for the history of printing, as it is one of the earliest examples of uh, uh, movable type for Arabic script. Um, indeed, it's thought to be the first printed Quran. It was printed by Paganino Paganini, who was a printer at the service of the Venetian Republic, and it might have been produced for export to the Ottoman Empire. 
given that printing was unknown in the Islamic world, but it never reached Istanbul. We don't really know exactly what happened, but soon after its publication, it was in possession of a, of a humanist and scholar of Near Eastern languages, Teseo Ambrogio degli Albonesi, who studied it and added his comments on the margins. And at times you can also see an interlinear translation in Latin. Later still, towards the end of the 16th century, printing in Arabic was resumed on, on a grand scale by that great enterprise, which is the, the Medici Oriental Press in Rome. So it, it aimed to produce propaganda to attract Eastern Christians to Roman Catholicism, but also to make a profit by creating a new market, given that printing was unknown in the Arab world, as I said. But it also had an educational purpose to provide good printed editions of Arabic texts to aid European students wishing to learn and, and read the text in the original. And they are really wonderful books with lithographs and Latin commentaries. And the printed Arabic is absolutely accurate and clear. So in our last podcast, we have seen several objects like the Lac of Edenhall or the Baptistier de Saint-Louis, which captivated the European audience. So I wonder, what about the objects, their circulation and their appropriation? So in parallel with the intellectual curiosity, there is a keen interest in the artifacts of the Middle East. And the great cities I mentioned before, as centers of intellectual activity, were also centers of artistic excellence, with splendid architecture and producing refined objects in, in all media, of a technical skill and beauty not even closely matched in the West, well, at least not before the Renaissance. It's not surprising then to find that numerous beautiful and precious objects from the Middle East ended up in Europe through capture, gifting, but above all through trade. Uh, one must remember that in Venice, for example, the import of carpets from distant regions of the Middle East was a major expenditure of the Republic from as early as the 13th century. There was no carpet industry in Italy similar to the Middle Eastern ones, and there won't be one that would produce the same level of technical sophistication, intricacy of design, matching up of colors as, as the Middle Eastern ones. In Cairo, the treasury of the Fatimids, who reigned from the 10th to the 12th century, was filled with wonderful objects made, for example, of silver or ivory or rock crystal, often with decoration carved in relief. And we know from historical sources that when it was looted, those precious objects were sold on the market. Some became gifts that ended up in Western church treasury through, usually, royal donations. So kings and dukes, according to a well-established tradition at the time, would make a yearly donation to the church of precious objects, including Middle Eastern ones. So they didn't come from the Middle East directly to the Christian church. They came to Europe through royal donations. And indeed, European church treasuries are stuffed with precious items from the Middle East, textile, glass, rock crystal, metalwork, ivory. And more often than not, these objects were given European additions, like a base or a lead or handles in gold, silver and precious stones that were made by European silversmiths. 
So what was the purpose of these editions? It, it might be thought that it was to mark the Christian appropriation of a Muslim object, the superiority of Christianity over Islam. But this argument is not convincing. And it's, and it's actually demolished by the sources. So we are lucky to have the 12th century account of a French abbot, Suger, of the treasury of Saint-Denis, who clearly explains that precious mounds were added as thanks, as an acknowledgement of the royal donation, and importantly, to enhance the beauty of an already beautiful object. And in this way, the object could be staged and displayed in all their splendor. So the changes that were made to these objects have nothing to do with Christians versus Muslims. Indeed, they show a great respect for those objects coming from the Middle East and were made as an acknowledgement to and to highlight their preciousness. So rather than appropriation, which may have this negative implication, this is a phenomenon that I would call transculturation or the process by which an object is put to a different use and has a different reception in the different cultural sphere to which it was moved. And there are many. Could you give us an example of an object that has fascinated you? <laughs> so a fantastic example of transculturation is the Pisa Griffin that for centuries stayed on top of Pisa's cathedral. And my fascination with it began long ago while I was still a student of Islamic art at Kafuskari University in Venice. And it has led to a multidisciplinary and international research project, which has culminated in a recent publication of 2018. So the griffin is a large bronze object, half bird, half lion, with wings and an opening in the belly with wonderful decorative motifs incised all over the surface and an inscription in Arabic also incised that runs on three sides of the body. It has been variously attributed to many areas of the Middle East and the Mediterranean. One could say that the griffin has flown far and wide from Iran, Egypt, it was attributed to North Africa, Sicily, and Spain. And it's most probably the work of Muslim craftsmen of late 11th, early 12th century southern Spain, Al-Andalus, and was most likely Pizambuti from the conquest of Mallorca. The sources talk about this fantastic booty that the Pisans took back to Pisa. And then it was assigned to the newly built cathedral as only the most precious objects were reserved to that amazing monumental project started in the 11th century of the cathedral, the Leaning Tower, the Baptistry and the cemetery in Pisa. So the griffin was set on a short column and fixed on the apex of the upsidal area, so at the back of the church, where it remained until 1828. When it was taken down, as part of a large project by which statues and other objects ornamenting the outside of churches and other monuments were replaced by copies while the originals were being restored and then preserved elsewhere. Later, the griffin was transferred to the diocesan museum where it is now. So if you or the listeners of this podcast go to Pisa and hopefully we'll be able to travel again soon, You can go and see the griffin in the newly uh, renovated museum, but don't forget to look up 
to the roof of the cathedral, where a copy of the griffin is placed where the original had been. The association with royalty and protection that griffins have is very old in the Near Middle East. Also, in the religious spheres, they were used and understood as symbols of protection and were guardian figures. In a Christian context, the double nature of the griffin, combining lion and bird, could be thought of as referring to earth and sky, and by extension to the double nature of Christ, earthly and celestial, earthly and heavenly. And there is some evidence that this was how its recipients interpreted it. So the Arabic inscribed griffin was assigned to the most important Christian project of medieval Pisa, the cathedral, and placed on top of the roof to guard its most sacred part and to guard the city, actually. Such an intriguing aspect. And do we know what function did it originally have? For a long time, it was suggested in the literature that the griffin could have been a piece for a fountain or an incense burner. But I've always doubted this. There is no sign of a water hydraulic mechanism and there is no spout in the mouth. And the griffin is too big to be an incense burner. And crucially, it doesn't have holes on the body, which is a characteristic of all incense burners to make the smoke and the scent come out and disperse in the atmosphere. So closer investigation of the beast made it clear to me that this hypothesis did not work. But then, back many years ago, back in 1992, through the opening (laughs) in the belly of the griffin, I found that he had the womb inside. It's a vase attached to the rear of the sculpture, opened towards the mouth. And this was a major discovery, never reported in any of the literature. And I started thinking of the possibility of sound. And given that the type of bronze alloy the griffin is made of, is resonant like a bell. This idea wasn't too strange. And I started thinking of the vessel inside as being part of a sound-making mechanism so that the griffin would emit a noise like So once posed, this idea opened up a whole world of sound-making mechanisms, many in the shape of animals from pre-Islamic to Islamic periods. We have numerous accounts related to Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire with Constantinople as its capital. And among the most famous, the descriptions of the throne of the Byzantine emperor, which the sources tell us was surrounded not only by bronze birds emitting different sounds according to species, but also by lions that beat the ground with their tails and griffins that gave a dreadful roar. But we also have descriptions of such devices in the Islamic world as early as the 8th century during the early Abbasid period, with texts explaining and illustrating such devices. So we are in the world of automata, or mechanical devices constructed to inspire wonder and to induce awe. So I guess this reading of such piece changes a bit our understanding of these medieval cultures. And I wonder where would the griffin be placed in its original setting? For a setting in which the griffin might originally have functioned, there are two hypotheses that I can put forward. One that was part of a palace setting, flanking a throne, 
the other that it featured in a garden setting, perhaps alongside other animal pieces. The first hypothesis has the attraction of those Byzantine and Abbasid parallels that I mentioned. The second would fit perfectly within the impressive princely ceremonies described by Spanish Al-Andalusi historians, which involved their magnificent gardens. So Ibn Firnas of the 9th century, Arazi in the 10th, and Al-Makari in the 16th century, all have accounts of court ceremonials and how uh, the caliphs of Spain impressed the visitors through them in the throne room with splendid furnishing, textiles, splendid robes worn by the caliph. But there are also accounts of the gardens and their setting, almost like theatrical stagings that were organized there. So the sources mention the Caliph Abdul Rahman III, who ruled from Cordoba in the palatial city of Medina Tazaha in the 10th century, having commissioned a large pool of water in the garden with an imposing lion of gold, with eyes studded with jewels and incorporating a water mechanism, a hydraulic mechanism. The water entered the lion from behind and came out from its mouth at such force that the water would then fill the various channels throughout the garden. Or another description is of the same caliph placing 12 statues of different animals in the garden, all made of gold and, and embellished with precious stones, a lion, a gazelle, a peacock, a falcon, and others. And one must remember that when the sources describe statues of gold, this may actually have been gilded bronze, which is what the piece of griffin might have had originally. So to have imposing south making animals like the griffin placed near or among the animal fountain pieces in a palace garden would dramatically expand the soundscape mixing the sound emitted by those animals with the splashing of water and with the wind. So what an incredible setting and performative ceremony. So, so when the griffin was put on the roof of Pisa Cathedral, its sound properties were retained, but, but in new ways. Because when the wind blew through its open belly at that altitude, it's very high up on top of the cathedral, it emitted eerie sounds amplified by the resonance of its interior vessel, giving it the symbolic attributes of a terrifying garden. And if I can, I'd like to mention the Arabic inscription on the griffin that is spread around three sides of its body, incised on the bronze in an angular script typical of the time. It belongs to the Benedictory inaugural class, and it's wonderful in its expression of good wishes. Would you like to hear it? Of course, we would love all to hear it. <laughs> so in translation, it says, perfect blessing, complete favor, perfect felicity, lasting peace, good health in full, and the promise of happiness to its owner. Really marvelous. And, you know, I'd like to think that now in its museum setting, those blessings are for all of us. Anna, it has been truly fascinating to hear these stories of a time in which, as you said, there was respect and admiration for our cultures as human cultures. 
And in this moment in history, in 2020, after all these events media has covered about the real struggle of the Middle East, the bad press, the stereotyping, how do you think we can start again a similar fascination and curiosity for the Middle East as that of our forefathers? How do you think we could achieve this? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. And of course, you know, when when I teach these things to university students, you know, students usually react in a very positive way. They are surprised sometimes or they learn a lot. Their view of Islamic art or the Middle East changes. But I really think and I really believe this, that Things like, you know, points that I've made throughout this podcast should actually be taught part of this school curriculum in a multi-ethnic Britain from very early on in primary schools as a cultural revolution to contrast the stark opposition and the negative views, as you were saying, that politicians and social commentators impose on us. It just needs an adjustment to the school curriculum in this country to to make these things known, to make Islamic culture and, and art valued, but also to make those Muslim students or, or students that come from those areas, even if they're not Muslims, to make them proud of their culture. And I think that's a very important point that we should, you know, do as much as we can in order to counteract this sort of, you know, sense that sometimes is so negative and it can bring lots of horrible things. Thank you, Anna. And I think that's what we have been hoping with this series, Converging Paths. This was a beautiful reflection to close today's podcast which has shown us an eye-opening story of transculturation, admiration, respect, and desire of understanding. We hope that we can foster many more thinkers in the future, like Niccolò Di Nicoli and Paganino Paganini, who remind us that the power to question is the basis of all human progress. Thank you very much, Anna. We look forward to seeing you soon at Asia House as part of our Converging Path series with the Baraka Trust, And it has been a pleasure speaking with you today. I look forward to that. Thank you very much, Juan. Thank you very much, Anna. And I thank all of you who are listening to this podcast and look forward to having you next week for a next episode. Until then, I wish you all... You were listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. For more information, please visit our website, asiahousearts.org.